from Migration Media, this is Migratory Patterns. I'm your host, Mike Shaw. Barbara Chen got her first taste of China in 1989. What timing! She fell in love, got married, and after a stint back in the U.S., has called Beijing home for the last 18 years. During that time, she's raised a bicultural family and now works as a recruiter for an American university helping Chinese kids make the leap to the West for their education. But, as she taught me, Chinese students who want to go overseas actually have to enter a Western-style education system long before they even take the SAT. This required exit from the domestic system has created a kind of parallel world where Chinese kids end up code-switching between school and home, essentially migrating internally before they migrate to another country. In addition to this, she taught me a new term, cross-culture kids, which is yet another subcategory of migrants that I need to learn about. Who are these kids who aim for an ultimate goal of college in another country? How many are there? Are their numbers increasing or decreasing? And how are the recent tensions between China and the U.S. affecting the flow? For all the talk about tariffs and visas and impact on the U.S. economy, it's important to remember that behind all the numbers are real people and families who dream of making a better life for themselves through education. I really admire Barbara, not only for the life that she's lived, but also for the work that she does. I think you're really going to like her. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Barbara Chen. Barbara Chen, welcome to Migratory Patterns. Thank you. Where is home? Right now, home is Beijing. Right now. Is there a previous? Yeah. uh, Among my homes, I've had several different physical homes in Beijing. I've lived in Tokyo. Mm-hmm. I've lived in San Diego. I spent a year in Philadelphia, but New Jersey is where I'm from. Where you're from. So do, would you have called any of those places home? Well, definitely New Jersey okay. is home. When somebody, you know, there, there's a difference between where is home and where are you from. Yes. If somebody says, where are you from? I would still say New Jersey. That's usually my follow-up question. We get, we dig in, someone takes 20 minutes to tell me what home is, and then I say, well, where are you from? <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm from New Jersey. Right. Uh, my family still lives in New Jersey. I've got eight brothers and sisters, my parents, assorted cousins, et cetera. So New Jersey is where I'm from, and New Jersey will also always be home. Um, so you said right now Beijing is home. I guess you've lived a lot of places mm-hmm. and uh, I know you've raised a family and we'll get to that. But I'm kind of curious, as you said, right now Beijing is home. And what does that mean? Well, it means that, you know, I'm not from Beijing, sure. but Beijing is home. And I've lived here for uh, the majority of the past 18 years. Wow. Uh, and I also lived in China from 1989 to 1991 out in Gansu province. And so... You're an old China hand, like we say. <laughs> uh, not not age-wise, just you've been here a while. <laughs> it's not an age thing. <laughs> but the age thing helps. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> um, so, but Beijing is home and Beijing keeps changing mm-hmm. and my role here in Beijing keeps changing. I'm interested. So, so I'm, I, I don't want to belabor this point, but I'm just interested in kind of the way you said that. But I know you've been here a while, 18 years, and you said right now Beijing is home. And I'm just kind of thinking, wow, I can't imagine being anywhere for 18 years and not feeling like it's home. It's just mm-hmm. a, maybe that's just a different mindset I have or a different attitude I have towards how I feel like about where I am. 
Well, if you had asked me in, in, in 1998, where is home? I would have said Tokyo.、Oh. Tokyo is home. Tokyo, you know, that was where my pillow was. Right, right. And, right. and so right now, Beijing is home. Yeah, yeah. And you've been here for 18 years, you said. The it- majority of the past 18 years, we, my husband and I, out and backed、uh, for his job to San Diego, and I would never say I'm from San Diego. Right. Or that's you know we lived in San Diego. But I don't count it among my homes. My wife qualifies things like that all the time. She'll like, oh, I lived in this place, but I would never say I'm from there. You know, it's like, and、yeah. and, and but I I actually will very honest. I'll go to Chinese people and I'll say,、oh, I'm from America. I'm from Boston. It's like, but where's your Beijing then? Like I've been here ten years. I'm a Beijinger.、Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of them I've been here longer than them. So I'll never be Chinese. That's a it's kind of a thing they laugh about, and it is laughable. But at the same time, I've been here a long time. I know the city, and 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 I have a feeling for what it means to. Be here, and I really like it. I identify with it a lot. Like I feel culturally, maybe it's a subset of the Beijing culture. It's the foreign people, but I definitely feel I'm of this place. Like it's really made an impression on me.、Mm. Yeah, yeah. And actually, it's hysterical that you say that because when I'm speaking with、uh, high school students around China, a lot of people I might do my introduction in Chinese. They'll say, "Wow, your Chinese is really good," <laughs> and they'll say, "Well, when did you first move here?"、Uh, Uh, and and so when I say something like "Oh, you've lived here longer than I've been alive," yeah,、uh, I'm more and, Chinese than you, kid. <laughs> and it's kind of funny, or、yeah. or they, you know, the the typical foreign reactions you get, like "Wow, nickel vibra, namalihi," like you can use mobike, you're so cool, yeah, yeah. and it's like, well, it's an app, and and maybe you don't know, it's also in English, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which takes away some of the.、Uh, How the, is your Chinese? It's okay. Yeah.、Um, I there's usually not anything I can't say in my daily life, whether it's shopping,、um, chatting with people in the cars. I use my Chinese professionally, so if I'm going out, depending on who I'm meeting in my work as an undergraduate admissions representative, I might give my presentation on the school in Chinese. I have my stock answers that I can do in Chinese,、right. but in ver- but I'm not fluent,、right. and I'm definitely not bilingual.、Right. But invariably, as soon as somebody says, "Wow, your Chinese is so good," it's the very next question or statement or word that trips me up and. Uh, and that's I, where the humility. Yeah, I've I've、in. talked to. I think there's been a couple of people in this podcast as well. But well, I, you know, whenever I get that, because the things I can say, I can say very well. I'm a very、mm-hmm. good parrot,、mm-hmm. and especially you get it with the taxi drivers the most. They're like, "Oh, you speak Chinese," and they immediately start talking to you. And I will I just tell them, "Well, men don't want you buhao." Like I will actually, my Chinese is not good, you know, and and I will just.、Uh, You know, kind of wave them off, and frankly, it's why we take Didi a lot because one of the things that they rate you on as a Didi driver, the Didi is the Chinese version of Uber. But one of the things that you rate your driver on is if they were silent, which is、yeah. which is amazing. <laughs> so like, they don't have to engage in conversation, which is、yeah. both sad and awesome. Yeah. So、um, let's kind of back up a little bit. You started in New Jersey.、Mm-hmm. Uh, where did you go after New Jersey? I went to college、You're, in Washington D.C. Washington D.C. That's a such a huge leap. Yeah, so it was part of my parents' rule. I had some. It was Boston, you know, as far as north as Boston, as far south as DC, and as west as Villanova.、Uh, so those were kind of the the triangle of where I was allowed to apply to go to college. I think that's technically United States. We have a me- it's a megalopolis. They call Boston a DC corridor a megalopolis、oh. because I guess there's no stretch if you if you follow the I ninety or I ninety five and the Amtrak corridor. I'm pretty sure there's no stretch of non developed land that's large enough. So it technically falls in the category of a megalopolis. 
megalopolis. Wow. So it's like constant development from Boston to DC, which is pretty interesting when you think about it. Um, so you, you went to school in the megalopolis. When did you move out of after school? I'm assuming is that when you went out? Yeah, directly. Where so I, to where? To China. You went to China right after college. Yeah. So I was like every. College senior, uh, looking at my options. Do I go to grad school? Do I get a job? Do I travel? Do I do a Peace Corps type program? And at my university, we had an option to teach English in either China, South Africa, or Nicaragua. And in the fall Nicaragua of, at that time, wow. Well, well, well yeah. So <laughs> the fall of '88, you know, Nicaragua, South Africa. China was the safe bet. Of course, flash forward to when I graduated in the spring of 89. Yeah. Um, things had kind of changed. Right. Um, a lot of – Nowhere was safe at that at that time. Yeah. yeah. And so like the Peace Corps, in fact, pulled out of China for that following year. I bet. Um, but I applied to China on a whim. I was an art history major. I studied Italian. I had not even taken an Asian studies course or a Chinese language course not even a Chinese art course. And so it was just, it was all three of those things. I was going to travel. I was doing a, I call it a volunteer program because I was paid 650 RMB per month. Uh -huh. uh, that was my salary at the time. Uh, and I did get some credits through the uh, summer school and continuing education. Hey, back then uh, that might've been like $60. So, well, actually at the time there were two different currencies in China. There was the renminbi and the FEC and foreigners were not allowed to use renminbi. We had... It was a parallel currency that was, it was supposed to be equal, that one would equal one. Oh. And so if you wanted to, for example, the Chinese students who wanted to take the GRE or the TOEFL, they needed to get FEC and then the FEC could be converted into currency. Okay. And the exchange rate was 1 to 3.71 at the time. You know, when I first – my first trip here in late 2000, you still couldn't get renminbi. You couldn't buy it. They didn't have the FEC anymore, mm -hmm. but you could not exchange renminbi. They had such tight hold on it. I remember we had to go to a guy in, on the street yeah. in a in, behind a, a, you know, a fake T-shirt stand. We had to literally mm -hmm. go behind there and he was counting out the money. That's when we did our exchange. Yeah, yeah. it was change of money. Yeah. And it was the VHS tapes as well. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah. the VHS tapes. Yeah. <laughs> Remember Adam's Family VHS rental? <laughs> oh, I came. When I came, they were in uh, uh, DVDs and VCDs. CDs, VCDs, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you came over, you came over in 89? Yeah. So, so you, you were here in 89? I came in August of 89. Whoa. So I. Did you have like people following you around everywhere? Like, I mean, like the security people? No, actually, it was a really interesting time because, as I said, a lot of programs pulled out of China and they uh, – like the Peace Corps, et cetera. But, but not you. <laughs> but but, but it, well, I came on a program uh -huh. uh, through the Georgetown University's – what was it called? It was called the Center for Immigration Policy and Refugee Assistance. They actually had to change the name because China didn't have refugees. They didn't need assistance. And so it became the Georgetown Academy for Intercultural Training. <laughs> Which was basically a, a, a subset of the continuing education that they offered. And it was through the State Bureau of Foreign Experts here in China. And the rule was that if you were accepted to the Georgetown program, they would pass you off to China. That China would review. And if they accepted you, they would place you anywhere in the country. And I got placed in Gansu province at the Lanzhou Railway College. And so because so many people had pulled out, there was actually a very – red carpet, white glove welcoming wow. for foreigners. Well, I'm assuming also – I've talked to people, not on this podcast, but I've talked to people who were in Beijing right after um, that 
unpleasantness in in Beijing and they said it was really tough like there was a point where they you know they got everyone out but then when they started letting people back in i think the people i talked to were here like 9091 when they came in they would have people clearly either from the police or the security bureau whatever following them around while they're on campus and they're in college you know these aren't professionals or people engaging in espionage they're just college students mm. on a grad school program or whatever and they've got these guys following them around in Beijing yeah. but not, none of that in Gansu huh well no we all had a white ban we you know somebody who was our I don't want to say a minder the way mm. when you go to North Korea you get mm. a minder who travels you around um, but on the campus, I had a Viban. And, and, and in essence, this person was my point person for any question. And if they had any questions, that she was my direct liaison. Wow. Um, that is kind of white glove. It's actually, it's the definition of white glove service. It's yeah. customized. So, uh, so this, when you're there, it's just hitting you in the face all the time. You're a foreigner, which is, of course, what happens with China with everyone. But then it's very severe. What was the, did you feel? I mean, obviously, you're, you're not there to assimilate, but your attitude as you're there, do you ever feel like you're welcome and a part of the community or do you, do you feel like your work is resented? I mean, how, how, how is that kind of reception? Well, the colleges that were able to get foreign teachers had a lot of guanxi. And, and, and so it was a big deal for the college to have not just me. There were uh, three foreigners, another woman. And the, the, the stipulation also was that they would send you with another person to each school so that nobody would be alone. And so, and then there was a Japanese woman also teaching Japanese at our school. I don't think they ever really wanted assimilation. I mean, at the time, foreigners, so I had to use this, what they called the white card, uh, which was yellow, to pay in renminbi. Oh. Um, no one in, in Lanzhou had ever seen the FEC. And so I couldn't use it. Uh, I got paid uh, 30% of my salary was in FEC and the rest was paid in renminbi. And I carried this card around so that I could pay in renminbi. permission to use renminbi. Yeah. Mm -hmm. or, or, and to check into hotels and to do other things. No one was really looking for me to assimilate. And the structures that were set up, you know, that foreigners weren't allowed to do this, um, were very clear. But you felt welcome. I did feel welcome. Yeah. I was also 21. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, and so there's a lot of naivete right. that comes with that. A lot of. I'm just going to go there and do stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah. What, were there a lot of other foreigners there? In the city of Lanzhou, yeah. uh, which was the capital of Gansu province, uh, there were about 18 foreigners. Whoa. Uh, that year. I think there's 18 foreigners in my building, <laughs> 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 which is still not a lot. But I mean, yeah. it's yeah. So um, you did this first stint, uh, and you were here for I guess you said till what 1991. Yeah, so I was there for two years at the railway college. And then where did you go after that? I returned to New Jersey with my husband. Oh, your husband? Yes. Your husband? You met him in China? Yes. So I met and married my husband in Lanzhou, and together we. Went to New Jersey in the summer of 91. Wow. Now, you eventually came back mm -hmm. um, and uh, you said you had a stint in Japan, right? Mm -hmm. So, But eventually came back. And I, I kind of want to focus on the China portion just because that's how I know you. How long were you in the U.S. with your, China, with your Chinese husband? Six years. Six years. Yes. So what was that like? Uh, do you remember the TV show Beijingers in New York? I don't. Oh, that's I, your homework tonight. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, and so there weren't a lot of Chinese people, th that migration of Chinese people traveling or studying. Right. The, the, uh, guy, the, 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 the Chinese people who are in Chinatown in Manhattan, you know, mm -hmm. in New York City, those are the ones, they're, they're from like the South, 
uh, Hong Kong or Fuzhou or whatever that, you know, they're, and a lot of them have been there for a long time. You know, that definitely, it's different from where your husband is. Is your husband from Gansu? Uh, no, he's from Ningxia province. But actually. okay, well, even then, there's not, I can't imagine there were a lot from Ningxia or north central China down there. Yeah. Um, that must have been difficult. It was. It was challenging uh, to find pockets of, of communities where we could we could go. But at the time, there were a lot of Taiwanese organizations. And so they had uh, churches on the weekend. And so we would go to the Chinese church. My husband's still not religious, but because they had food. Uh, they, they had these big luncheons yeah. and then they had uh, Chinese schools. Come for the and, food, stay for the Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> and so we actually would show up as mass would get out. And, and <laughs> oh, mass was great. Where's the buffet? <laughs> yeah, just just to, to join the community. Um, but uh, you may remember that a lot of the students from China who were in the U.S. during 1989 were granted permission to stay. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah. And and so there were a lot of people who typically would have had to apply through OPT or to get visas to stay at jobs, uh, part of what they began to call the brain drain uh, of, of China, right. that there was all of a sudden a bunch of educated, uh, American educated Chinese students uh, living in the United States. So uh, this theme of education keeps coming up because uh, it's kind of what you do. So you mm -hmm. went over to be in education. Did you come back to focus in the education field? No. And and to be fair to all the very qualified and certified teachers out there, my credential was that I was a native English speaker with a college degree. Well, back then, it's really all you needed. I mean, even up until a handful of years ago, it's really all you needed. They've only really started to get serious about that. Uh, and I've and I've and I've. It's funny. I've seen it happen in real time because my wife is a highly qualified and credentialed teacher. But when she first came, I remember. You know, she'd had her undergrad was in early childhood education, so it's mm -hmm. not like she came with an art history degree and was gonna start teaching, but. She came over and everyone told me, everyone told her, when you come over, you'll just get a job as a teacher. It's so easy. But right when she got here is when they really started tightening the, 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 the restrictions on who could teach, what the qualification needed to be. And now it's super hard to be, to get, you can still be an English teacher. You could still freelance. Um, there are ways to kind of do it under the table. But if you want to get a job at a school, at a good school, you got to have all your ducks in a row now. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. when you came over the second time, was that what you were coming to teach? What do you mean the second time? So you, you were here for to, from 89 to 91, mm -hmm. and then you went back, and now yeah. you've been here about 18 years. Yeah. So. so we went to Tokyo, and we went there for my husband's job. Uh, he's an engineer, and he was working with Lucent Technologies, uh, and he went to Tokyo, and I was a trailing spouse. It's one of the oh. derogatory words in the, uh, in the expat world. Yeah, um, I'm about to be one. Yeah, so I was a trailing spouse in I'm Japan. I'm totally cool with it, though. <laughs> I'm like, you drive the ship for a while. <laughs> I'll go wherever you want. Yeah. And so uh, – but while we were there um, and we had uh, – by then, you know, six years later, we then had two children. And so we had this amazing – I was going to ask you when the children came in because I know – I mentioned you raised a family. I wasn't sure yeah. if you'd had them here or at home or like how did that work? Yeah, they were born uh, – both of them were born in New Jersey. Okay. Uh, 92 and 96 respectively. Mm -hmm. uh, and we moved when my youngest was a year old over to Tokyo. And so it just kind of lifted this vision on 
different schooling options. And they went to Nishimachi International School, which was set up for Japanese children who had gone overseas. But when they returned, they weren't able to come back into the Japanese system. Wow. And so the school by structure was uh, 50% Japanese, 50% foreign passport holders. And it was a K-8 school at the time my oldest daughter was there. That almost sounds like a special ed program for kids who, quote, can't come back. You know what I mean? It sounds mm-hmm. like a you can't come to the real school, so we're going to put you over in this other school. Wow. Uh, and it's a fantastic school. And it was interesting because there, there were tons of biracial children, whether they were Japanese and something else or American and something else. One of my daughter's friends, uh, uh, classmates who became her first roommate after college in New York City was Thai Chinese, American, and Japanese, or, you know, he had four different passports in Phenomenal. his family. Uh, and so we loved living in Japan. I still, uh, I think so fondly on those years. Uh, but at one point I said to Guang, I said, wouldn't it be cool if we had this, but Chinese? And so as a trailing spouse, I actually led the initiative for us to return to China and Lucent at the time uh, was Bell Labs still, even though Bell Labs wasn't still a thing in the U.S. It was um, an, uh, a company here. And so his job took us here to China in 2000. So we returned. Uh, again, I was primarily a trailing spouse. Trailing spouse. Now, the work you do now mm-hmm. is still in education, and I guess mm-hmm. that's why I was wondering how you got here. I wasn't sure if it was you or he who brought you back here. But you've been in Beijing. How long have you been working in education now? I've been in my current position for three years working in undergraduate admissions. Prior to that, I had worked at a high school for U.S. study abroad students. So at school year abroad, students come for their junior, uh, sometimes their senior. These are, these are Western kids coming to China. Mm -hmm. American students, uh, coming from their American high schools, predominantly the New England boarding schools, which is what. St. Paul's and all that mm -hmm, stuff. Yeah, yeah. the St. Grottlesex crowd. Uh, and so it actually started out in 1964 as school school boys abroad. And it was programs for the boarding school boys to go to Spain and France. They used to beat uh, kids up from those schools. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, it's uh, school year abroad is now its own nonprofit, although some of the sending schools are still um, – the, the original schools are still some of the major contributors uh, in terms of sending students here. I was the college advisor for those students while they were doing their year here in Beijing. Oh, wow. Because they need to go back to their sending school for their senior year of high school or for the ones that were seniors here. They needed to do things like take the SAT or the ACT. They needed to be put in touch with college admissions officers who were doing their circuit here in China. Uh, And also you can kind of help them understand how to tailor their experience or leverage it into their – like how you apply to college or how you talk Mm -hmm. about it or – Yeah, how to make it meaningful. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. And you work now with undergraduate missions working the other way. So now you work with Chinese students going to the U.S. Right. Some, you know, so people say I'm now on the other side of the desk. So I work for the University of Tulsa, okay. which is a small private university in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I do their China I thought outreach. thought it was in Chicago. Yeah. <laughs> <Just kidding. laughs> well, you know, a lot of people uh, don't know where it is. Uh, Tulsa doesn't have a big name recognition in right. China aside from – the infamous Friends episode where Chandler goes to Tulsa oh. and it doesn't show the city in a very favorable light. Oh. Oh. So, um, so, so you're working with a lot of Chinese kids going mm-hmm. to the West. Mm-hmm. And this is a big deal in the U.S. right now because we've hit the 
the Hubbard's Peak for student. I don't know what they call it in education, but uh, the Hubbard's Peak referring to the oil reaching maximum production capacity. And then we're on the downslope. Uh, we haven't hit that. But we've hit the Hubbard's Peak with native students in America. And I know in New England this is a big mm -hmm. deal because we've got small liberal arts colleges closing left and right, mm -hmm. and which is a big deal in New England because it's kind of a bedrock of our economy. I think we have like 140 schools within a 50-mile radius of Boston, over 200 if you go out to 100, 150 miles, and they're dropping like flies. So everyone's looking for students, and the batch of students is China. But there's issues with Chinese enrollment kind of decreasing in the U.S. And they're mm -hmm. thinking, is it Trump? Is it the trade war? So usually we don't talk about current events or anything like that in this podcast. But you've got this interesting perspective because you are in the thick of this migration. But as a foreigner, you're witnessing the kids doing it on their end. Mm -hmm. So what do you think – to the the kids who are looking to go out, do you feel like they have unrealistic expectations about their experience or what they're going to get from it? So, well, two things. I don't necessarily think it's the kids who are looking to go out. Hmm. In the Chinese high school system, the 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 senior three, uh, grades 10, 11, 12, which is their senior high school, that's not compulsory education. And so for the students who opt to go into an international division of a public school or into a Chinese private high school. These are prep programs. Like we would have a preparatory high school. These are kind of in-house preparatory programs for kids who have said or their families who have said they're going to go out. Right. Yeah. And, and and so the, the key thing, though, is that so the parents are making this decision for the students. You know, in grade nine, they're making the decision if they stay in the Chinese system or if they opt out. If you go to an international school, and, and by international school here, I'm referring to the ones that are legally allowed to enroll Chinese passport holders. If a Chinese student goes into that system, it's a one-way ticket. They cannot take the Gaokao. So they are completely opting out of China. And, and that's happening before they even left. That's happening wow. in grade 10. When you opt into an international division – or a private international school, you are opting out of higher education in China. Wow. So these kids then, it's not a question of expectation. It's a question of, I got to make this happen. Mm -hmm. It's a whole different kind of pressure. Mm -hmm. Wow. Uh, well, no, but it's a, it's, a, it's a different kind of pressure. Right, yeah. Um, because to prepare for and take the Gaokao, that's a very intense experience. Sure. And for people who are listening and don't know, the Gaokao is, you know, you could call it the SATs of China, but it is much more comprehensive. It is much more intense and much more consequential. That is really a shorthand. They, they study for literally for years. It's all encompassing and they sit down for an entire, is it like three days or four uh days? They're changing. They're changing, yeah. yeah. So they're and they sit down and they take these tests and they, you know, they will literally shut down cell service in the neighborhoods where the tests are happening. They will, they will ask everyone to be quiet, shut down construction because people are studying and trying to do this test. And when, how you score on this test will determine what college you go to and what level of college it is, where it's located. There's all sorts of crazy formulas based on scores from this province versus this province versus mm -hmm. this ethnic group. And it determines your entire future. It is, it is that big a deal. Yeah. So it is a, a, a one metric 
decision-making factor for college admissions. But I will have to say it is not China's SAT. That is actually my pet peeve in what I do. Well, it's the because, only way I know to communicate it, it know, to people who don't know. know. But, pe- yeah. but, uh, but, it's, um, but it is their entrance exam. Yes. And it is the sole – metric for admission. Yeah. So yeah. if so when I say it's a different kind of pressure, Gaokao is insane pressure. But if you get a score on the Gaokao, you're going to end up somewhere. But if you've gone into this other program, you're committing that you're not getting in anywhere. So if you don't get in somewhere good in the US, you are screwed. But therein lies the conundrum because right. there are over 4,000 colleges in the United States alone, um, there is a school for everyone, and this whole and I'm notion, sure there's plenty of schools that need full boat paying Chinese students. And that's actually the second biggest myth yeah. uh, is that the Chinese students are full pay admits because many schools offer scholarships to Chinese students. Many, uh, a very few number of schools, uh, the big name schools in the U.S are need-blinded admission for international students and will fully fund according to what you can afford, just like they would in the U.S. It's um, like your Harvards and your Yales. Yeah. They, yeah, they, if you don't, yeah, those guys, that's the people that understand. They actually don't. You, if you make into those schools, you're just not paying if, you, if your family is worth less than a certain amount. You're just not going to have to pay. Right. Um, so, yes, you're dispelling some notions here. So, so what else don't I know about this cohort that's going over? Uh, so they're increasingly – choosing many other destinations. And so you might think, oh, they're choosing Canada. They're choosing Australia, New Zealand, Ireland, you know, the English-speaking destinations, of course, the UK. But what's really interesting that I'm seeing is that they're also choosing other countries that offer programs in English. Like like Germany? Germany and Germany is free. Right. Um, uh, The Netherlands, they are doing great campaigns to promote their universities uh, around the world, particularly in China. I'm not familiar with uh, Denmark's higher ed um, or they're recruiting a lot of the hospitality schools in Switzerland are coming here, which is uh, fantastic because the hospitality industry here in China is booming and there is such a need for people in those industries, but also locally. Yeah, I actually remember you're just – triggering a memory in my brain from several years ago when I was uh, talking with a potential marketing and PR client about they were basically a it was a local management company that was running Hyatt's and Hilton's and stuff and and well you can't do more than one but they were working with high-end hotel brands and they said the biggest problem they have is finding local people you know who can work in hospitality who are trained to western standards which was the big problem and it, and I remember thinking well you should just run training programs and he said yeah we're going to start working with these hospitality academies and like now they're doing it like these mm-hmm. academies are coming here it makes mm-hmm. sense yeah it's awesome it is yeah what yeah. so so these kids who are chinese and they're they're looking at all these different places are the numbers of people going out still increasing so the Increase this year on all students in the United States is up uh, about 3%, but the growth is slower. Right. There was a dramatic decrease, actually, during the year of Smogageddon, if you remember, 2012, oh, yeah. 2013. Right. Th- that year, um, and, and so that had a, a, a decrease. But, you know, the numbers have steadily been increasing from China being awarded the Olympics after the Olympics. And so this is the second year that the that the rate of increase has slowed. Has, has slowed. So it's still increasing, but the rate of increase has slowed. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm assuming in the U.S., 
it's not growing enough to replace the loss of native born students that's happening. I guess that's what the big, the big conundrum is. That's my assumption. Mm -hmm. So do you find, um, now, now you're working with one school. So, but, but you still see, I mean, you're privy to the numbers because you're plugged in. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about how many of the Chinese are going to other places? Is it besides America? Like is the numbers in, basically, if I look at China, Mm -hmm. are the numbers of students who are leaving China for their education, is that still growing? Like, the U.S., I kind of understand what you're saying, but just globally, are they still opting to go out in greater numbers? Well, if you think about the fact that there are 800 international schools in China and that the the British international schools uh, here in China are growing 13 percent each year. Oy. Uh, and, and those and all in, those kids, when they go to those schools, they are opting out of the Chinese system. They are opting out of the Chinese system. Wow. And so it's a leading indicator. Wow. That's that's unbelievable. I know that. um, That's got serious implications. I mean, it takes a certain amount of pressure off the Chinese system, but it has serious implications for the Chinese secondary education system Mm -hmm. just because. I mean. On a macro level, it's good for China. And it's bad for China. It's bad because there is this, quote, brain drain. But it's good because these guys are going out there, these guys and gals, they're going out there and they're getting that education in that other place. And then they're bringing that back with them. The majority of the overwhelming majority of them come back. Um, And that's the new trend. Right. Actually, it used to be that students would go overseas. They would want to do their OPT, which is how they're legally able to stay and work for a few years after graduation, and then hope to parlay that into a permanent visa job, maybe into a green card. Now the students want to come back with that expertise. Uh, You originally asked me about their expectations. Yes. So their expectations aren't so much when they're going overseas, but they there is some unrealistic expectations in terms of how that will monetize or what jobs they can get when they return. Yeah, I've seen this as kind of the dark side. Like uh, the kids that go over there, they can be woefully unprepared, at least for the cultural assimilation. They, they, you know, the academic rigors here are such that I think they know how to study and they know how to get through material, but the system of learning is so different over there that they can have real problems uh, succeeding. And I think I saw a figure that was, I think 50% of the kids at some schools, they don't even make it past the first year and they come back. But then on the, even the kids that make it, they come back. Now that foreign degree is so ubiquitous. So many people have mm-hmm. it. If you're not at a Harvard or a Yale, it's mm-hmm. kind of like America now. Like if you're not at a Harvard or a Yale, no one gives a crap. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, you're going to be working your, your crap job and your parents have paid out so much money to send you overseas and you really don't have a lot to show for it. Yeah. There was, did you, Read that article about the restaurant here in China that wanted an Ivy League degree for their waitress and waiters. Oh, I heard about that. Yeah, one. and and so so the the I find that the students coming back are actually a lot better prepared in terms of adapting with skills and 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 learning styles than the media might portray. Right. Um, of course. I only know what I read in the media. This is why I'm glad yeah. you're here because I I catch glimpses of this in the media. I'm yeah. not in the industry, so you're 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 educating me. Yeah. Um. And and so the students though they come back, and it used to be that anyone with a foreign degree could come in and have 
major advantages in getting jobs. And now, as you said, uh, foreign degrees are ubiquitous and it's no longer a standalone credential. And it's so what school was it? China is so metric focused that if it's not an Ivy League school or a top 50 school, uh, and that's the problem with recruiting, is that if you're not one of these schools, how do you get people to understand the value of that? So what it so on your end of it, then, and we don't have to talk about your university in particular, but Mm -hmm. how do you speak to the Chinese students? And do you find that retention rates and or completion rates are a thing they think about and are important? So I, I guess what I'm all this is to kind of say there is a cultural thing that there's a cultural assimilation thing that has to happen when they go over for them to be able to succeed. And then there's a a skills acquisition thing that has to happen while they're there. So when they come back, it can be worth it. So I'm wondering if you see a connection between the two and how it's being handled in the industry. Well, in theory, the students going over, regardless of the curriculum that they're coming from, should be prepared. Um, we're looking at transcripts. We're looking at classes. So whether they're doing an A-level course, if they're doing APs, IB, uh, in theory, you know, these students should be coming in prepared. The IB program is a pretty good precursor to going into a Western college liberal arts program. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Or, or AP courses or even a high school uh, here in Beijing, uh, like uh, Beida Fuzhong, they have an incredible international division, and they don't use any of those AP, IB, A-level courses. They have their own curriculum. Those students are super strong. Um, and so we're looking to see what kind of work they're doing. And at TU, we actually have a great support structure on campus. Our school is actually 20% international, mm. largely in part to the oil degree that's offered, and it has a lot of uh, – popular countries that send for that degree in particular. Um, But the students are getting that support on campus. If they're going to a school where there are 3,000 Chinese undergraduates, they might not have to assimilate. And that's where people make their individual decisions. What do they want in an undergraduate degree? My regret is that people don't really consider what they want or their experience as much as they should, they're looking at the name of the university, its ranking, and its location. But uh, on the return end, there is a group here called the American Universities in China Association. The ALCA group is founded with universities that have a presence here in China. As a member, uh, TU is part of their career fair. So we actually host career fairs here in China twice a year. We do them in Beijing, Shanghai, and Shenzhen was the city we added this year. And so when I'm trying to get people to consider the value of an education at my school or the other member schools, we can say, you know, we don't just want to get you in. We want you to stay in. And we realize increasingly that you are going back to China. How can you use this network from our alumni association to help you get jobs? And what will we do? And so in part of my job as everybody else, we go knocking on the doors of all these corporate companies here in China and say, hey, we're holding a career for for these schools. Would you like to attend? Uh, these companies pay big bucks to access these students, and it's two days of interviewing on the spot with students for actual jobs. And I think it's a way for universities to recognize that support while you're there is super important, and support once you return is essential. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. I, I had no idea the, stu- the colleges were doing that. And I should say there are 16 colleges that participate in the career fairs. So when people talk about rankings and top 50, 
I say, well, we're top 16. We're one of 16 schools right. that offer this program. Yeah. yeah, that's actually really cool. So, I mean, there's a certain – you know, there's a certain cachet that goes along. You know, if you're a Harvard, you don't need to do that because everyone's going to hire a kid from Harvard. But, but at the same time, you know, that's how you can def- better define yourself on the back end is to say, we're going to help you with career development. Mm-hmm. I don't, again, I'm, I'm not interested, I'm not interested in digging into TU specifically, mm-hmm. but that sounds like something that colleges should be doing anyway for everybody, yeah. not just their Chinese students. Mm-hmm. Like that sounds like a kind of a metric of success. Or a metric of quality that I would be looking for in a school. Like if I'm going to graduate from this school, I'm going to pay you tons of money. Mm-hmm. What am I getting? I'm getting an education, I'm getting a degree, but that's great. I mean, what, but, but how does it help me? You know? Yeah. But understandably, that's not the way most students from China are approaching their college search. Uh, and so you might have heard and, and about the conundrum of a, a Duke University professor who sent an email out to all the first year grad students saying, don't speak Chinese in the student lounge to each other. Oh my God, I never heard that. No, and wow. it's 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 unfortunate because being bilingual, of course, is incredible in research. In your spare time, you should speak whatever language you're comfortable with. But it was just, they, you know, the the email had said that it might negatively impact the opportunity to get research opportunities with professors, who then asked to have the students' names identified by photos. Uh, it was just a really horrible moment for Duke university. Um, but the truth of the matter is, it's Duke. It's not going to affect their applications this year or next year. And what's going to happen is this whole trickle down of, is America a welcoming destination? It's going to affect the smaller schools right. or the schools that aren't in you know, the top 50 that don't rank higher. Right. So you now you, you were kind of dispelling my notions about the Chinese students are the ones that come in and they pay the full ride. There, mm-hmm. you know, there are plenty that do that, but there are also mm-hmm. plenty that are getting scholarships and mm-hmm. grants and things. So how important do you see the Chinese student population in being to the continued growth and vitality of our private education system in America? Well, I think each institution would have to determine that for itself because this year, actually, I think it was UIUC actually – had an insurance policy against a drop in growth of Chinese students. Wow. They actually paid a huge insurance policy in case of another travel ban, which I think today is the two-year anniversary of Trump's travel ban on students from certain countries. And there are, you know, the residuals of the current administration or the opportunities elsewhere uh, around the world to have a degree – at an, uh, a competitive price, much more affordable than some of the U.S. institutions and just different opportunities. I mean, I'm thinking on a macro level in yeah. terms of the the education industry mm. in the United States, which mm-hmm. is, for one, it's it's interesting to say it's an industry because schools are, yeah. for the most part, private and nonprofit. You know, there's mm-hmm. a public education system, but there's most of the schools are private and nonprofit. And being from New England, I'm very familiar. They're woven into our community as mm-hmm. these, you've got these networks of schools and mm-hmm. they, they, you know, they've got a several thousand students, but they're all private. They're all liberal arts. They're all nonprofit. They don't pay taxes. Mm-hmm. So to refer to them as a quote industry is, mm-hmm. it feels weird, mm-hmm. but they are. They're, they drive economies. They dr- they drive local economies. So if I go to a place like BU or if I'm hanging out in my hometown of Boston, I got to tell you, I was there l- not this past year, but the year before. I was there, I think it was the last week of August. The city was lousy with Chinese people. 
And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean they were just everywhere and they were families because they were bringing their kids to school. You know, school starts at the beginning of September. The move-in day, we, you know, the move-in day we have in Boston is, you know, it's one out of every five people in Boston is a student during the school year. It's a, we have the largest concentration of students per square foot anywhere on the world, in the world. Mm -hmm. So we understand the impact that schools have on the local economy. So when I say how do Chinese students, how does the influx of Chinese students affect the economy of higher education? I guess what I'm talking about is how important are they? So you can talk about your school. We can talk about the industry. But if you see a big drop off in Chinese students, what's the what's the what's the damage? So IIE, the International Institute of Education, actually put that number at 14 million dollars, the economic impact of Chinese students. Uh, I'm seeing here that I have million written, but I bet that's billion. That sounds like billion. billion. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Um, In terms of who are. Renting apartments, buying cars, the shopping, the eating, the travel, et cetera. Um, and so that economic impact is something that our administration actually should – the U.S. administration should consider when they make impulsive decisions on restricting students from around the world. Well, um, that, that's macro mm-hmm. economy-wise. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about schools. Mm-hmm. So if yeah. I'm a small liberal arts school yeah. in New England and I see a 10% drop in Chinese students, what does mm-hmm. that mean for me? So that means two things. One, you've put all your eggs in one basket, which is disastrous. We saw that in the late 70s with the students from Iran. When a government decides that you know students can't be here anymore – you know, your your pipeline is turned off. That happened just last year in Canada with Saudi Arabia. Their sponsored students were were called home. And so uh, so UIUC has now this insurance policy that if there is something that dramatically reduces the number of Chinese students by a certain percentage, they will collect this revenue. That's telling. And so if you are seeing a 10% decrease in Chinese students, universities can do one thing. They can Put a local rep on the ground here in China. They can offer to work with commissioned agents, uh, which they would be paying a headcount per student who enrolls. And there's a whole sleaziness mm-hmm. that goes along with. There's a whole weird. That's another podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and then there is also something like University of New Hampshire, right? Small uh, New England school. They announced that they were going to accept the Gaokao as a metric for admission. So students who scored a certain score on this exam. And then had to have an interview with English. But they don't have to take the SATs. No, actually, there are over a thousand colleges in the United States that do not require an SAT. Right. But for foreign students, that's a big deal to not require the SAT. I would think the opposite. Really? Um, uh, that, in in fact, uh, we're one of the schools that don't require it for our international populations. And you might not know that it's actually not offered here in China. Um, do you have to go to Hong Kong to take you it? You have to go to Hong Kong, uh Thailand, Korea, uh, the Ministry of Education does not allow the exam to be offered in Chinese schools. So the international schools that cater to children of foreign workers, the foreign passport holding students, those students can take the SAT or ACT here in China. For every other Chinese student, they need to go overseas to take the test. And that creates quite a bottleneck, actually, for schools that offer it in Thailand or Korea, et cetera, where students at those schools often can't get their own students in to take the test. Wow. Um, and Mm. Wow. It's like buying the diapers. It's buying the baby formula. Wow. That's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. So so you're doing this now mm-hmm. and 
is this is this something you want to keep doing? Because it's I, I, if I was in your in, I mean, I will say just as someone sitting next to you thinking about all of this and thinking about the crazy, not crazy, but just the huge cultural implications of so much cross pollinization mm-hmm. between the cultures, mm-hmm. taking kids in their formative years, putting them a in international programs, b then sending them overseas for school and then bring them that changes China. So that sounds to me that is incredibly exciting and interesting, and it it's it creates a dynamism in the culture that you really I can't think of many industries you can be in where you can see it happening in real time. Is it something you want to stay in? Yeah, it's fascinating, and uh, I know in the past we've talked about third culture kids. You've had other experts here in your room chatting about third culture kids, and my subset of that is cross-culture kids, specifically educational cross-culture kids. Um, And so a third-culture kid is somebody who was raised outside of their parents' culture for several of their formative years. Uh, That's typically families who go overseas on international assignments or missionaries or military, and the children are raised in a culture that they don't identify with their parents. For educational cross-culture kids, these are students who are hidden immigrants. These are students who are crossing international boundaries and cultural norms every day just by going to school. So if we think about a Chinese student here in Beijing leaving their home, uh, you know, whether they're taking a, a bus, DD, a mobike, et cetera, to school, they're walking into a different community with different cultural norms. It's almost like walking to America or America is a bit too broad, but it's almost like walking through another country. Yeah. So it's this, you you cross borders without leaving your city. Um, and whether they are, whether that's through clothing, what, what uniform are they wearing when they go into this building? What language are they speaking? What are things that they could do at home that they could never do at school? What are the expectations in terms of, when you think academically, in terms about citing sources in research, uh, about raising your hand and having conversations, having a, a roundtable discussion versus having a, a teacher direct information that you absorb and you spit it back the next day? And then they would go home and back to their house where the rules again would change. Uh, and, and, and this is a really fascinating idea, whether it's Chinese students going to international schools here in China, whether it's a Korean kid who lives here in China and goes to ISB um, and, and just navigating these international boundaries that don't exist. You don't need to bring a passport the only thing I can think of that we could equate that to in the U.S. is like kids who go to Hebrew school on the weekend mm-hmm. or Chinese school on the weekend. Or, you know, they, there are there are first generation immigrants usually mm-hmm. who will, you know, send their kids to these weekend programs that are kind of like – I don't want to say indoctrination. That's a kind of a weird word. But they're basically – it's to to educate you at least in the, the language of the culture. And mm-hmm. – that's a weekend thing that usually mm-hmm. kids kind of like, they, they take to it or not. But here, it's every day. And it, but it's code switching. You know, you turn yeah, it on, switching. you turn it yeah. off. Yeah. Um, and whether you're bilingual and you speak differently, or whether that student, you know, you're talking about uh, uh, Hebrew school on the weekend or or Chinese school on the weekend. Uh, you know, are you bowing to your teacher in, in Chinese school? Are you nodding? Are you doing something in, in, in Japanese that you might be nodding? The different words you might use, the formalities of language that you might use, 
what happens when you see that person at the grocery store? Right. Uh, uh, do you switch back into that again? Are you hanging out with your friend? It, 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 it's it's just a really fascinating thing to consider about identity. Yeah, for me, one of the things I love about being here is you know I, I'm not. I'm not in that world. My wife is is on the teaching side of that. She's in the international school, so she's teaching the kids. So I kind of get a glimpse of it on that side. But those kind of things are happening or those kinds of things are having a real effect on the culture here. You see it with the way the youth here, they're into innovation and entrepreneurship, the way uh, pop culture is evolving here. It, you can see the influences. And it's it's interesting to watch this country, to, to be in this country while the culture is having a conversation with itself. And the mm-hmm. conversation is happening in lots of ways and on lots of levels. But basically, it's all about what does it mean to be Chinese and incorporate these things that we're bringing in? Like we're opening up. What does it mean to to open up and to bring all these influences in? And how do we... What is the Chinese dream? You know, all these things that, that, that you hear about in China, China's trying to figure out what all that means in the context of, well, we've got millions of kids who are going overseas and coming back or having checked out of our educational system, which is how you basically maintain your culture. Mm-hmm. And they're living their lives code switching for so many years. And then they come back, you know, that that changes things. And to, to be in this culture while that's all happening is just endlessly fascinating. And, mm-hmm. and, I, and I just love it. Well, I, I want to thank you for coming in because you you have dispelled some notions for me. I've I've actually taken some mental notes, and when I go through this episode, I am going to actually write some things down because a lot of assumptions I had about you know the kids paying all the time, and I'll mm-hmm. find a different way to say that uh, to, to 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 describe the gao cow to people that it's not the SAT. I'll find another way. It's the entrance exam. The entrance exam. Uh, I will take that away. But I want to thank you for taking the time on your on your day to come over here and talk to me, and I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Well, there you have it. I really learned a lot there. I hope you did too. One correction there, Barbara did want to note that the economic impact of Chinese students in the U.S. is actually $14 billion, not $14 million. Kind of obvious, but we want to make sure there's no confusion. As always, if you have any questions about this interview or any interview I do, if you have comments, suggestions for interview subjects or topics you want me to talk about, please reach out. You can find me on Twitter at ZAX2000. Of course, email is best, mike.shaw at migrationmedia.net. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.